Hey, our passage this morning is Jonah chapter 2. If you want to grab your Bibles and get there, Jonah is a book in between Obadiah and Micah. And I know that just doesn't help you at all when I say that, but it's kind of fun to say that like that, to throw it out there and to trip you up. It's about, I don't know how many books from, past from Genesis it is. Um, that maybe will help you too. And it's a few books before Matthew. Um, you're going to have to look in the beginning of your Bible and find out what page it's on for you. I don't, I don't have anything else for you. Jonah chapter 2. We're in week two of our Jonah series. One of our aims uh, at Substance and as Substance Church is that we want to hold the orthodox, orthodox, which is orthodox means right belief. So we want to hold a, the orthodox truths of the historic Christian faith. So if you're new here and you look around at all the stuff and you think, why is the pastor dressed so casual and everybody's so casual and you got all this wood and it looks like you guys care about artistic things too much and you know, all, all of that stuff. Well, let, let me tell you what the real aim is. And this stuff just flows out of that. It's that we would hold to orthodox truths of the historic Christian faiths. And one of these truths is that we believe actually, we believe we hold to a supernatural God. So a pastor, a theologian, old time, old school guy, R.C. Sproul, he addresses those who criticize the supernatural nature of God by saying this. This is what he said. He said, criticism spring from assumptions that deny God's sovereignty in nature and history, including his ability to intervene supernaturally in the created order. So what that helps us with, what that tells us is that our view of God needs to be married to an ever-growing and sobering view of ourselves, all right? This means that what we see with our eyes and assume in our hearts is vastly limited when compared with an omniscient and omnipotent and an omnipresent God. And really, the Bible itself is a storyline of God's supernatural intervening into our lives, into the affairs of men and women. We see that when we start with Genesis chapter 1. What do we see there? But God creating the heavens and the earth with the word of his mouth. God says, let there be light, and there's light. Every time God speaks, something is created. I mean, I can't do anything with my mouth except get in trouble, right? God speaks and everything's created. We go to Exodus 7, and we see uh, God delivering the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, and he does it by sending these plagues upon the Egyptians, these, these supernatural um, acts that just literally come intervening and invading the lives of the Egyptians. He, he sent plagues of flies and frogs. He turned the Nile River into blood. So we see again the supernaturalness of God. We get to Exodus 14 and we see that as God is delivering the people through Moses from Egyptian slavery, they get to the Red Sea, they hit a wall. God says, it's not really a, a wall for me because I created uh, walls and the Red Sea. And what he does is he parts the Red Sea supernaturally so that the Israelites could pass through. It just keeps going. We get to the book of Joshua, who was the successor to Moses. And uh, Joshua was fighting a battle on behalf of the Israelites, and they needed a little more time. They needed a little more sunlight. So God does this miraculous work where the sun stood still and the moon stopped for a day. God did that. God did that. We get to Numbers 22. God, this one's really interesting. God gives a donkey human speech 
to save one of his prophets that was supposed to be delivering a word. Some parallels here to what we're going to be studying in Jonah. We get to 1 Kings 19. We see another one of his prophets, a guy named Elijah. He wins a showdown between him and all the false prophets that have risen up in Israel. He calls down fire from heaven. God sends fire from heaven and consumes this massive altar that he built. God did that. We get to Daniel chapter 3. We hear the story of three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They get cast into a fiery furnace because they refuse to submit to a false and foreign God. They stayed faithful to God. They get thrown into a furnace. God preserves them in the fire. They don't get burnt. Their clothes don't even smell like smoke. They're not even tinged, singed. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I get close to my fire pit at home and I start getting a little bit nervous, right? We get to Daniel chapter 6 where Daniel gets thrown into a den full of lions. And what happens? Well, he closes the mouths of the lions and God spares him. I've been injured by one of my kitty cats before, right? God spares Daniel. And then we get all the way to the New Testament and what do we see but Jesus himself in the miraculous supernatural nature of Jesus, who is the second person in the Trinity, who was God in the flesh. He turns water into wine. He gives blind men sight. He raises his friend Lazarus from the dead all the way to the most miraculous miracle of all time where he dies on the cross, and three days and three nights later, he is raised to new life. Christians serve a supernatural God who intervenes in his created order. And why do I mention this? Where am I going with this? I thought we are doing Jonah chapter 2. We are. Give me a minute. But why do I mention this? Well, because if you believe this is true, if you believe everything I said, if you believe that by faith, which is a faith that is given to you by God to believe in his supernatural intervening, then a story about a man surviving three days and three nights in the belly of a whale is not crazy. It's not crazy. You know what's Let me tell you what's crazier. What's crazier is what Jonah does after he gets swallowed by the whale. I'm just going to say whale from now on. But what's crazier is what happens after Jonah gets swallowed by the whale, which is this. He writes a poem. Jonah writes a poem in the belly of a fish. Like when, I, like when I'm in trouble, like when I'm having some hard times, I eat peach cobbler and I take a nap. Jonah, Jonah gets swallowed by a fish and he writes a poem, and this is what we're going to learn this morning, is that God delivered Jonah. And how that applies to us is that God delivers his people from the depths of unexpected events when they call to him expectantly in their distress. And that's what we see when we read Jonah chapter 2. But I'm going to back up here as we look at our text. I'm going to back up to chapter 1 verse 17 and start there. So follow along with me. It says this, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves, all your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. 
The waters closed in over me to take my life, and the deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever, yet you brought me up my life from the pits, O Lord my God. Verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols, they forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word. So Jonah's prayer here, it reveals three realizations for those who find themselves swallowed by the belly of something, by the belly of life, by the belly of your sin, by the belly of something that is consuming you. We have three realizations. Number one is that we have God's ear. The second one is that we see God's hand. And three, we discover God's heart. Number one, we have God's ear. This is what Jonah understands as he begins to write his poem and his prayer. And again, the beginning of this poem is interesting. It's interesting considering what Jonah came out of. Remember where we were last week, which was this brother that was trying to run the opposite way from God. And he has this dramatic experience where he gets thrown overboard into the water before uh, the, this whale comes and swallows him whole. So the beginning of this, it's almost like reading Jonah's Insta story a little bit, right? We're, we're getting some insight into what's been happening to Jonah, you know? Like every time my wife says I'm being dramatic, you know what I want to say now? Compared to who? Jonah? Right? Like not so much anymore. Not so much you can accuse me of that, babe. That's kind of what we're looking at now. That's one of the reasons why I love Jonah. But this is what's interesting. Jonah goes from fleeing from God to pleading with God in one chapter. He had reached a point of distress so low. And not only so low, but so unexpectedly low that he finally needed God to be God. Isn't that interesting? So what does he do? He cries to the Lord. From the belly of Sheol, he says. Now, when we see this word Sheol, it just is another word for, for death or another word for the realm of the dead. So this kind of gives us some insight into the seriousness of where Jonah was and how he was feeling about where he was. And again, Jonah isn't the only person in the Bible who calls out to God in this kind of distress. We read it all through the Psalms. In Psalm 130, we read this, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. So this is not unusual language in the Bible. This is the language of the Bible. And we reach a moment in our lives when all of our theoretical Sunday school theology, it gets tried and it gets tested because it's not good enough, theoretically. When it's not enough just to know stuff, about God. But like Jonah, we need God to be God. And we need God to know us like only God can. This is how our theology is actually refined. In those moments when we begin to see God for who he truly is, and our hearts are moved to something. Our hearts are moved to prayer. What we see here is that Jonah had God's ear when he had reached the depths. Well, the depths of what? What, the, the fish? Well, not the fish, but the depths of his foolishness. 
Sometimes people can get to just woefully unhappy places in their life, but still have hardened hearts, right? You see it all the time in others. Easy for us to see it in others, although it's usually happening in ourselves, right? You think, that person can't get any lower. Like, why can't they see that, right? The problem is that their heart hasn't followed where their footsteps have taken them. That happens all the time. Jonah finally experiences a moment of realization. And his moment of realization is this. You're never in a place so low that your cries are out of earshot to God. Now, look, I mean, we see this and we think, should Jonah have been ashamed coming before the Lord like this? Should he have been embarrassed about the place that that it looks like he had gotten himself to? Well, yeah, absolutely. You think God gave him so many chances to make that U-turn, right? Remember last week in chapter one? Remember he, he, you know, he's packs his bags, he's on his way to Joppa to hop on the boat, and he had all these, he's paying the fare, he could have turned around then, he walked onto the boat, he could have turned around then, he goes and lays in the lower deck to, to fall asleep, he, he could have turned around then, he could have repented, you know, the weather, starts, the weather starts going south, it starts getting dark, the clouds are moving in, he could have turned then, I mean, he had all of these opportunities before it got really bad, and they had to throw him overboard to turn, and he didn't. And yet, even in the belly of this whale, what's happening? Well, God's giving him another chance. We think that he's spent all of his chances, but it's this very episode of being swallowed by this fish where he's given another chance. Sometimes you think you've gotten to a point of no return and you think that's it, right? You think God can't possibly have any time anymore for me. Surely he's lost patience with me because I've lost patience with me right? You think there's nothing left in his reserves. I know, I know, I've heard all of my life that they're infinite, but they can't be. And what you fail to realize, what I fail to realize is that this is the moment God's placed you in to turn you back to him. God's people always have God's ear, but God doesn't always have our hearts. Let this help your theology. Let this help your theology as I, as I read from Psalm 4 here for comfort. Psalm 4 says this. He says, answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. He says, be gracious to me and hear my prayer. It sounds like Jonah. O men, he said, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. Now, when the God sets apart the godly for himself, does that mean godly, perfect people? Well, no, there's no such thing. Because all godly people are still sinners by nature. But this is what he says. But the Lord hears when I call to him. And in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, alone make me dwell in safety. So what we see here in the first couple of verses as Jonah cries out to God, is that in our distress, we have God's ear. We have God's ear. And it's foolish for us to forget that. But we do. But not today. Today we remember that because God has given us this chapter to help us remember it. Number two, not only do we have God's ear, we see God's hand. Okay, as we get into the rest of this where Jonah is describing what's going on. This is where imagination is helpful, right? 
It's helpful for us. There's no bright spots right now for Jonah, all right? Here's what I mean by that. There's nothing so good happening in the belly of that whale to convince Jonah he's not going to drown. Remember where he is if you can. I mean, literally, like if you've ever watched a movie, read a book, or, or drawn something, like just try to have an imagination of this brother in the belly of whatever this thing was. Try to imagine it. But there's no waterproof bunker in the belly of the whale that Jonah can like swim over to, right? And get a nice dry bed, get some Netflix on the wall, right? Like that can't happen to him right now. The sea creature is descending deeper into the ocean as he's caught in its belly. Jonah, what, what do you think's happening right now but that he's swallowing all these mouthfuls of salt water? I mean, if that's happened to you once, it's like you have the worst day of your life following that, right? Think of all the salt water getting into his eyes, burning his eyes red as he's trying to keep his head above all of this water. The darkness that must have just been consuming him, not being able to see what was around him, the seaweed wrapping itself around his legs and his neck. And not only that, but what about some of the things that aren't said? Imagine the whale gets hungry and decides to eat other terrifying creatures that are now swimming around with Jonah wondering, gee whiz, what's going on, right? I mean, I see a spider and I'm like, babe, I don't think this house is a safe environment for us anymore. <laughs> I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's true, it's insane, right? It's insane. But what Jonah represents in this moment for us is it really represents these stark metaphors for our lives, right? Maybe some of you have experienced this kind of physical or just maybe it's mental anguish for you. Some of you have seen your life flashing before your eyes. Some of you are experienced the end of life flashing before your eyes. Your options, they're exhausted. Your options seem exhausted. I don't know how this relationship is going to work. I don't see where this money is going to come from. I don't know how I'm going to get the help I need. It's interesting that when Jonah had reached his most unexpected low, he not only had God's ear, but he could finally see God's hand at work through all the scenarios of his life. It was in that moment he realized that the worst thing was not the waves and the billows passing over him in verse 3, or the feeling that he was being cast down into the land whose bars closed upon him forever in verse 6. It was that he'd been driven away from God's sight in verse 4. That's the place that God finally gets Jonah to come to. And of course, we can't even consider that without seeing this distinct parallel here to Jesus as he was in anguish on the cross. As he suffered, we look at his physical torment and we shudder. You know, for those of us who have seen the, the, the Mel Gibson Passion of the Christ, you know, we, we look at that and it kind of gave us this really just crazy visual on what that might have looked like. And it was hard to watch. But that's not really what made Jesus shudder. What made Jesus shudder was when the Father turned his face away from him at the ninth hour and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the part. That was the moment when he was driven away from God's sight momentarily. And so more even than Jonah, what Jesus reminds us of is that even in our depths, we see the mercy of God's design in our lives. Maybe it's hard for you to remember that right now. Is it hard for you to remember that right now? 
Is it hard to imagine what possible good could come from the depths that you find yourself in? The disciples must have imagined that when they saw Jesus hanging on the cross. What good can possibly come from this? And we wonder that too. But we don't serve a God who is lax in His promises. And when we look in the Bible, when we look in Scripture, we see that too. 2 Peter 3.9 reminds us that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. You know what that sum is? That sum is us. We count God as slow. But He says, He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So God has very unique and interesting things of drawing us back from the place so we can get into the place where we are finally before the throne of God's mercy and say, I need you. I didn't think I needed you, but I know I need you now. So in those ways, Jonah could trace God's hand. And by seeing and tracing God's hand, number three, Jonah discovered God's heart. Even in his distress, Jonah had hope that he would be reunited with God in his temple again when you read down in verse 4, and that God would bring up his life from the pit in verse 6. The language Jonah uses, it's dramatic because he was in a dramatic place. Some of you are in a dramatic place physically. Some of you are in a dramatic place mentally. Some of you are in a dramatic place because like me, you're just drama all the time. Everything that happens in your life just feels like drama, right? And that's why Jonah says when his life was fainting away, God reveals his heart to Jonah. What does Jonah do? How does Jonah respond? Well, Jonah prays his heart to God. Look, the reason why prayer is so effective for the repentant person is that it opens our heart to see both God and the gods of our heart. That's why it's so effective. That's what it does for us. That's one of the things it does for us, is that it opens our eyes. You heard of that phrase, the eyes of my heart. What's going to open the eyes of my heart but going before the Lord who is in my heart to open those eyes to the gods that exist in my heart? That's what was happening to Jonah. And Jonah's conviction, it leads him to clarity in verse 8. He said, look, those who worship idols find their security and false comforts, end up abandoning their covenant faithfulness to God is what that means. We become reminded of this in our distress too. By seeing God's hands, we discover God's heart. I remember when my parents started charging me rent. I remember it very distinctly, right? I was so angry. It was crazy. I was so mad. I remember they sat me down at the table they broke the news to me, right? I was really young. I think I had just gotten out of school. And I was so mad. I thought, how dare you not give me everything for free anymore, is what I thought. I was supposed to be funny, you guys. But I literally thought that. I, I mean, I literally wouldn't have voiced that, but I think I may have. I think I literally may have said that to them. Like, how dare you not just give me everything, right? And you know what they did? I didn't know they were doing this. It was crazy. They didn't need to do this. They did this. They saved all my rent money for the couple more years I lived with them, and they gave it back to me when it was time to move out and get a place of my own. That was their plan the whole time. So their whole plan wasn't just to be big meanies to me, which, again, just to charge me rent wasn't, didn't mean they were being meanies, right? But they had something else in hand, in mind, 
when I didn't know what it was that they were up to with that, was to give me back the very thing that I was sacrificing for them. So looking back by seeing their hand, I, I really got a picture of their heart, which was only to do me good and to help me. And that's Jonah. He had God's ears. He sees God's hand. He discovered God's heart. And finally, he gives God thanks. Jonah's repentance leads to thanksgiving. It leads to turning. He's going to show now that his repentance is real in verse 9. He's going to pick up and do what God has asked him to do. And what we understand is that active repentance is always followed by active obedience. Real repentance is always followed by real obedience. And listen, the, the, the way this was all going to flesh out is that by Jonah's obedience, the Ninevites were going to become obedient. And by Jonah's salvation, the Ninevites were going to receive salvation, which again brings us back to the shadow of the kind of salvation that was provided to Gentile sinners like us, which God established through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Could it be that God appoints our lows so that by our deliverance through them, others might be delivered from theirs? Could it be that that is part of the reason why God brings us to our lowest points and then pulls us out of them? How vast do we think the plans and purposes of God really are? Probably not so vast. We probably think they're limited. We probably think of our own plans and our purposes. We look at the things that we have set out to accomplish and see how most of them have not worked out the way we thought. We look at the failures. We look at the wrong turns. We look at the projections and the estimates and go, yeah, there's no money left. Totally screwed that one up. Had no idea that we were going to do that and then that was going to happen. And so we immediately put that onto God and it's false because he doesn't have barriers. Micah, the book of Micah 719, the next book. The prophet Micah says he will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So God has a power to do something in his omniscience and omnipotence that we don't possess. So let's not put our limitations on a God who doesn't have any. Because what that does is it causes us to pull back from our view of him and then our thankfulness to him. If we don't get to the depths, like Jonah, this is what happens. We don't cry out to God in our depths. And then we don't give thanks to God for delivering us from our depths. What Jonah does is it shows us a God who intervenes through wild and untamable events. This was wild, dude. This was untamable. This is like nothing that any of us have gone through. That's how, that's how extreme this example is that we're given. God extracts us sometimes from the wreckage of life. He does it like a police officer saving a person from the crushed remains of a car accident. Maybe that's happened to some of you. Or like a firefighter who saves a kid from the fourth floor of a burning building. That's the rescue. That's the rescuing of God in our lives. And you could argue, well, wouldn't it have been better to not go through it at all? Why even send us through it at all, God? Well, that's a good question. And God's not angry when we ask that question. 
He's not. But what if there's an answer that only an all-good, all-loving, all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present creator can only know? What if there's an answer that God in his infinite wisdom and knowledge wouldn't even be able to tell you in a way that you could comprehend? It doesn't mean we'd ever choose to go through something painful. It means we can trust God for what we can't see in the depths of our pain. What did Jonah need to know? What did he need to know? What was God trying to impart to Jonah through this? What was so important that God sent a whale the size of a small house to consume Jonah? Well, our answer comes with Jonah's declaration in verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And here's the word. Here's the line. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the message that Jonah wasn't understanding. That was the place God was getting Jonah to, that salvation comes from the Lord. See, Jonah is not about a man eating fish. It's about a man saving God who intervenes in the life of a man incapable of saving himself. It's a picture of the salvation of Christ. And the encouragement for us is that Jonah never slipped out of God's hands. Never once did Jonah slip out of God's hands. Why? Well, let's go back to verse 17. And the Lord did what? What's the word there? Appointed. You can say it with me. Let's say it. Appointed. Let's go to the very end. Verse 10. And the Lord, what does it say? And the Lord spoke to the fish. Nothing was ever outside of God's control. He appointed the fish. He spoke to the fish. He preserved Jonah in the belly of the fish. Here's the mystery question. Why does God get us out of the messes we get ourselves into at all? That's the question that you're not asking. Why did God help Jonah at all? No obligation there. I mean, Jonah just fully disobeyed. Why does he get us out of the messes? Matthew 12, 38 through 41 says this. This was Jesus, again, haggling with the scribes and Pharisees. And some of them answered him saying, this is what it says, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, which was a ridiculous thing to ask given all the signs that Jesus had done. They were baiting him. They were saying, what you're doing is not enough. We still refuse to believe in who you say you are. But he answered them, it says, and he said, an evil and adulterous generation, unfaithful generation, seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonas. This is Jesus referencing the story of Jonah. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then he says this, the men of Jonah will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The answer, the answer for why God gets us out of our messes is Jesus. It's repentance and salvation. God delivers us out of our messes through the obedience of Jesus, who is the greater Jonah, who is in the heart of the earth for three days and nights so that we might be delivered from the belly of hell. In the same way that God appointed wicked men to crucify Jesus so that we might be saved, he appointed a great 
fish to swallow Jonah so that, as we're going to see, an entire nation would be saved. And the parallels there are just stunning, aren't they? So let me close with this. Some of you have experienced the bars of death closing in. I didn't write that. I'm not being dramatic, babe. I didn't write that poetry. Some of you have experienced the bars of death closing and you feel like life has swallowed you whole. And there's nobody here that has probably not had a moment in their own experience that it felt like that was happening to them. Or maybe you know somebody that is in the throes of that right now and you're so close to them that it might as well be happening to you. And like Jonah, you feel like you're held between the jaws of something that you can't pry open. And it might be the jaws of your own sin that's digesting you. You might say, it's my fault, Ronnie, but it's my fault. You might say, I paid my fare. I got on the boat of my own choosing. And now here I am. I'm powerlessly trapped in something I can't deliver myself out of. Well, all that's true. When we find ourselves in that particular place, when we have been swallowed whole, it's because we have gotten ourselves to the place of being swallowed, like Jonah. But this is what we learn from Jonah, is that whatever depth you find yourself in, there's a deeper depth at work. There's a deeper depth at work. Let this help your theology today. God's mercy is deeper than the depths of your troubles Was there ever a moment when Jonah had fallen outside of God's control? No. We just read verse 17, and then we just read verse 10 in chapter 2. It's easy to forget when we're in the belly of our own whale that God appointed, and God is speaking to that which he appointed. The thing about reaching the bottom and crying from the depths is that it produces a depth in you that was missing before a deeper well of knowledge and love for God, a deeper well of mercy for others, a deeper understanding of your finiteness. All these things God appoints to create a wholeness in you. Ronnie, I've been swallowed whole by this thing. God's creating a wholeness in that. I don't have any control over it. He does. He does. It's a severe Mercy is what we would call it. God is so merciful that he plunges you into the depths so that you might emerge from those depths with a voice of thanksgiving for his salvation. There's no other place that any of us need to get to other than that. Because whales, to use the metaphor, will emerge in the life of the Christian to consume, to swallow them. And yet if we read and believe our Bibles, we'll see that we're not more special than all of God's people that have gone before us. I mean, if you were, if you were born in Ohio, I did not have that privilege. If you were born in Ohio, the expectation is that there's going to be winter. I know. Mid-August, man. It's looking bleak already for some of you. But the expectation is that there's going to be winter, and at some point in February, there'll be mountains of snow and ice that become ugly and desolate and drive you to despair. Unless you remember that underneath the snow and ice 
is what you are experiencing now, which is the most beautiful, vibrant green that will emerge because of the snow and the ice. See, if you're in a climate with no ice or rainfall, you will also have no green come spring. See, we always try to get through things. God is getting through to us through things. Right? A guy named Sheldon Vonnegut, he wrote a book called Severe Mercy. It's a great book. I'd recommend it to everybody here. This is what he said, and he went through some stuff in this book. Um, it's a quote from him. He said, though I wouldn't have admitted it, even to myself, I didn't want God aboard. He's talking about his life. He was too heavy. I wanted him approving from a considerable distance. I didn't want to be thinking of him. I wanted to be free like a gypsy. I wanted life itself, the color and fire and loveliness of life, he says. And Christ, now and then, like a loved poem I could read when I wanted to. That's what he said he really wanted. He said, I didn't want us to be swallowed up in God. I wanted holidays from the school of Christ. That's what Sheldon Vonnegut said. And I don't think it's really much different to even though we might not have the courage to voice that, it's how we live and it's how we feel. But what we know and what we learn today is that God delivers us from the depths of these unexpected events when we call to him with expectancy in our distress. We know that we'll have God's ear, we'll see God's hand, we'll discover God's heart, and we'll give God thanks because salvation always belongs to him. Remember your parents used to tell you, if you could just remember one thing as you're going out the door, remember one thing. This is our remember one thing moment. If you can remember one thing, it's that salvation belongs to him. Because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he not what does the Bible tell us? That God is stingy? That God is withholding things from us for our good? No, the Bible shows us time after time, moment after moment, that He's just the opposite. What will it take, though, for your moment of clarity? Because some of you guys, man, are in the belly and you don't see it. Your eyes haven't been opened. What will it take for your moment of clarity to be delivered, to be made new again. So like the psalmist in Psalm 86, you can say this, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me because you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Let's pray. God, we find ourselves in unimaginable places, sometimes in imagined places. We look at the consequences of our actions, of our decisions and choices. We see that our sin has brought us to a place that we never wanted to be, but yet we find ourselves in that place. And other times it's not our sin, Lord, but it's that we live in a fallen world and that things break because things break in a broken world. 
And so, Lord, it's in these moments that we need to come before you and cry out to you from our depths. And God, oftentimes we don't. We try to find other fixes or we try to run from you. We try to plug our ears and scream at the top of our lungs. And God, we see how foolish that is. And we see how it's actually no help to us at all. We see that in all of it, it's just a form of self-medication. And so, Lord, I pray today that in this particular moment that we would be like Jonah. We would come before you. We would cry out to you. We would humble ourselves. We would be able to have your ear and see your hand, discover your heart, and give you thanks for salvation comes from you. And we would see that all of our desires are held by you, in you, and for you. That you have made us new creatures. And God, that we have the same hope that Jonah had. That you will deliver us. That someday there will be no more pain, no more crying. These days will be over. And Lord, right now we can live with that sort of transforming hope. Because it's not a hope that's buried inside of us. It's a hope that's been made alive in us and now goes through us. So God, I pray for soft hearts, Lord, as we get ready to come before your table and remember Christ's life and death and resurrection, Lord, that you would nourish us by your word once again. You would nourish us in Christ. Lord, you would relieve us of some of our pain that some of us are suffering today, whether physically or mentally or spiritually and emotionally. Lord, we trust in you. We hope in what we can't see, knowing hope will not put us to shame. We thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.